to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode 140, 140. And if you have any questions or comments, you can always address them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them in the comments section on Podbean. And if it's a question, we'll be happy to answer it. If it's a comment, uh, we'll be happy to answer you. So there you go. And of course, uh, my plan, my my plan, my outline for the podcast has been altered by obviously yet another school shooting. And uh, I've only got a couple things to say because everybody is analyzing and going over this stuff ad nauseum. All I have to say is this guy's family knew what was up with him. They knew this guy was a a real problem and yet they allowed him to just toddle along and even on his 18th birthday go buy two AR-15 rifles. So, uh, you know, if somebody's going through problems like he was clearly exhibiting and all the warning signs are there and it's all in the media, I think that you know that's that's the first breakdown of responsibility but that's going to happen because we live in a society where some people are good parents and some people aren't just the way it is some people are good parents some people aren't and uh, some people are going to raise kids who are all messed up but when it comes to schools you, you get this fake democratic party outrage and all these clowns are out there everybody from whoopi whoopi goldberg who wants to punch a republican in the face if they if they show any kind of sadness over the school shooting whoopi goldberg is a psychopath and a liar i mean she she didn't think the uh, you know the the holocaust was just a white people's problem to her remember that and that was just just a couple months ago um you know these pigs these this gutter swine they act with all of this horrid outrage and everything else when this happens and of course they use it as a platform to push for more gun control but what these people have not done and i use the word people loosely because i i think they're gutter trash they've done nothing absolutely nothing to make classrooms safer and everybody knows you know, these things don't happen in inner city schools where they pass people through magnetometers and they have, you know, security all over the place. So if we can secure inner city schools, we can secure the rest of them. After all, we gave the uh, Taliban like $80 billion worth of uh, military equipment and all this stuff. We're giving another $40 billion to the Ukraine. Maybe we could, uh, you know buck up a few billion for uh, school security and uh, you know and, and the other thing too is some of these rented cops which are just these rubber gun squad uh, getting ready to retire cops who are these school you know officers or whatever the, these guys need to get tough and they need to they need to understand there's no reason at a middle school or elementary school that an unknown 18 year old needs to be on the campus i mean we should have security even if it's you know i and they can work it out cameras and all the rest of this stuff some guy walks onto the campus somebody should challenge him and say 
Who are you and what are you doing here? Especially if they're carrying something that could conceal a, a long rifle, you know, or a shotgun. Uh, you know, it seems to me just counterintuitive. Even way back in pre, the prehistoric days, when I was a kid in elementary school, I can remember several times someone would approach the campus, an adult or an older, you know, teenager type person, you know, somebody who wasn't obviously a student there. And the minute they would get on school property, uh, someone would challenge them. And it was usually one of the, you know, younger male teachers would say, who are you and what are you doing here? And, and in these, and in my cases, um, everyone was, I am Mr. Jones. My, I got a call that my child is sick, so I'm coming here to pick him up. And in which case the teacher would take him in, link him up, make sure they got, got their child and, and, and happily on. Or it's, I'm, I'm little John john jones's older brother and he forgot his lunch so i'm bringing it to him um can you give it to him or can i give it to him and, and it was something like that um if if an adult had approached that campus with you know something that resembled a long gun or a duffel bag or something else uh, the police would have been immediately called so, I mean, we, we have the ability to do that. We have the ability to put some fences up around schools. We have the ability to put better doors on classrooms and teach the teachers, teach the teacher how to lock it, how to, um, you know, secure a classroom. We could give them, you know, some kind of like a little fire extinguisher thing full of bear spray. So if a guy kicks a door in, uh, they could pick that up and they could, they could at least defend themselves. I, I don't think it's going to be very practical to arm teachers with firearms, but at least if that threat's there and if you have some school security cops there, um, you know, th this kind of stuff can go away. This is an easy problem to solve. It's a large problem, but the solutions are, are fairly simple. So I'm, I'm just very disappointed that, again, it turns down into gun control. Because, frankly, I don't really care how this guy got his guns. He was going to get weapons anyway, whether he buy, buys them legally or illegally or however, you know, he procures them, steals them. We had that one guy stole them, stole them from, uh, wasn't the Sandy Hook guy steal it from his uh, mother? You know, he killed his mother and stole it. This one shot his grandmother. Um, you know, I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. I mean, I don't care how they get the weapons. What I care about is that they can't get into school and somebody stops them. Uh, you know, we, we fortify banks. Look at all the banks we have everywhere. And banks very seldom get robbed. Um, you know, we fortify everything. Try to get into a courthouse with a weapon and see what happens. Um, try to get into a lot of places with a weapon and you can't get in there because they have a magnetometer they have somebody will search you try to get into a, a sporting stadium with one you can't cannot do it so uh, try to get on an airline with one see what happens so we can secure schools uh, we can we can prevent people who don't need to be there and have no business being there from being there it's it's all very simple and it can all be done 
So that's that's just what I wanted to say about that. Um, you know, until the, when you'll know when somebody's a serious player if they start talking about that rather than railing about, you know, how much money did the NRA spend in 2020 or some some ridiculous nonsense like that. Uh, to get back on on point, back onto the back onto the list of topics. Um, talked about the dangers of World War III last time, and and basically you should prepare for some supply disruptions. You know, already kind of said that. I, I'm not a prepper guy. Uh, I would suggest that you listen to prepper podcasts. I mean, uh, you can. They they've got all kinds of ideas, and and nothing will make you completely self sufficient, but it may give you a, enough of a leg up so that. Uh, the discomfort you're feeling during the disruptions will be a lot less than what it normally would have been. So I will go go and leave that. But I'd like to talk about the dangers of a proxy war, which is what we're in right now. Before I do that, I need to apologize to everyone very quickly. My allergies are kicking my butt this morning, um, so I'm I'm I sound a little bit uh, nasally. I know. So if you just bear with me on that. It's just that time of the year. It's just that season, you know. So um, if you could uh, have some forbearance for me, I'd appreciate it. But the dangers of a proxy war. Uh, what what kind of a risk are we running in this thing? Um, we're giving $40 billion worth of lethal aid to the most corrupt country in Europe. That We know they're corrupt. Where's this stuff going to wind up? Um, they're not going to use all the switchblade drones and all the javelin missiles and all the advanced stingers. They're not going to use all of these in this war. There's going to be some left over at the end. And face it, Ukraine is corrupt enough. These things could wind up anywhere. We will be facing our own weapons. Weapons that we paid for will be used against us by people who we never intended them to be. They will fall into the wrong hands. They will fall into the wrong hands. Or they'll just be taken and copied by people like China. So we'll be facing, you know, copies of, of weapons that we made. Um, that's why giving a lot of stuff to Ukraine does not make sense. Humanitarian aid is great and fine, but um, a lot of this military aid, I would be question it very, very heavily as to what we're really doing because uh, we're running the risk of a wider war. It's only going to take a missile strike or some other incident with a NATO country to have this thing all of a sudden get out of control. And, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger is the only guy speaking any sense and nobody's listening, of course. He basically told the Ukraine, what you need to do is cede some territory to Russia and end this war. Better for everybody. But right now, we're in a very, very dangerous phase. And we have been overt enough in all this so that Vladimir Putin and maybe others will be looking for some revenge. And face it, terrorism is revenge. Uh, that gets us to, you know, the Ukraine. All of a sudden, every every part of the 
the the military industrial complex can't wait to get new weapons over there to test them out this it's becoming the spanish civil war of the 2020s um, where everybody's saying let's send the new tank over there let's try these these new things let's see how well these new toys work um, that is to be expected i mean you see a lot of different weapons and things are just showing up there but uh, that's that's dangerous also uh, we we also are are basically exposing some very very sophisticated technology to everyone when you start using a weapon some are going to you know be exploited and adversaries will now know exactly what your capabilities are or where your capabilities are going because they they have at least a a prototype or a nascent production variety of, of a weapon so uh, it'll be very interesting to see how this all plays out um, the reason one of the reasons they want to test all this stuff out and prove how effective it is is so they can sell more of it um, face it every country from <laughs> Norway to to Turkey to anywhere and everywhere in between is buying weapons like crazy um, Fortunately, they're not really buying small arms ammunition to, to dry up our civilian sources, but they're buying all the anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons they can buy. I mean, compared to the systems that they're slotted against, an anti-tank missile is cheap compared to a tank. An anti-aircraft missile is cheap compared to the aircraft. So, you know, it's they're definitely buying this stuff there's a huge market if I would was going to give anybody stock market advice I would be buy defense stocks because clearly this is gonna fuel it for for quite a while probably another three or four or five years uh, this is going to fuel a uh, a buying spree that every every country wants this advanced stuff so they're gonna go out and get it uh, that brings us to another thing. You saw Biden on television talking about the uh, the shooting, the first thing I talked about. You know, if, is there a larger picture or a better caricature of a failing president than Biden? Everything he's touching is turning to poop. I mean, he is turning it into Amber Heard in the bed poop. I mean... It is it is just horrid what he is what he's doing everything he's doing turns out to be horrible there's no bright spot anywhere so I you know I just sit there and I wonder what are they gonna do they they're going to do something before these midterm elections because they don't want to be they don't want to lose a hundred seats in the House of Representatives although they're in danger of that I think they're in danger of losing even more but um, anyway uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty horrible so be prepared for trouble uh, Roe v Wade is this thing's gonna get overturned and just kind of sent back to the states and and that's just is what it is and it's not really going to affect much so you have to drive a hundred miles to get an abortion as opposed to you know five miles that's probably what it means for for most people
However, you've already seen a lot of the nonsense that's going on. A lot of the protesting, a lot of the, just the, the triggered reaction, you know, out of control reaction. You can expect some trouble over that. They'll try to make it the new George Floyd thing. Um, I think the public is a little bit tired of the the shootings and all the rest, you know, of, oh, this poor suspect was shot and, you know, it was white cops and he was black and all this. I, I don't know that they're going to get the, the George Floyd gift again. But anything's possible over the summer. But Roe v. Wade is, is basically served up on a silver platter for them. So that, that will be some trouble. And, and with that comes some cautions. Um, don't think that it's, you know, 1966 or 1965 and there's just riots going on in the, you know, minority section of town. That's not it. This stuff, they, if they learned one thing, it's that they've got to get out into the suburbs and places that would not normally expect civil disturbances. And they know that that's also very, very vulnerable. But be aware, uh, everybody now has a camera on them in, the, in a cell phone. Even the cheapest, I think, burner cell phones have cameras. And just think about it. Go back in time to 1963, uh, the Kennedy assassination. If something like that happened today with today's technology, how many films or camera images, camera videos, would you have of, of that? And the answer is you, you'd probably have several hundred from different angles. Some are going to catch some things that others aren't, obviously. But you're going to have hundreds of videos to look through. It was only just pure luck that, you know, that one guy, Abraham Zapruder, was there with his 8mm movie camera and caught it on film. If he hadn't caught that on film, we would still be speculating as to what happened because there weren't a lot of other film sources around there. There just weren't the cameras. Nowadays, there are cameras everywhere, even in the Ukraine. They're, they're taking pictures and they have, you know, whether it's security cameras, whether it's some other kind of camera, cell phone cameras, all this stuff, um, they're everywhere. So you have to assume that no matter what you're doing outside, you're being filmed. You could be being filmed by a drone. You could be getting filmed by something else. There is no way to protect yourself from that. A lot of these devices even can film at night. You know, they're night vision. So... Um, understand that everything you're going to do out there uh, is going to be filmed. Look at those, look at the couple in St. Louis. They were filmed, you know, and the, you saw the aspect of the film. That obviously came from the mob. So uh, it's, it's going to be a very, very, you know, ugly, contentious type of deal where there's going to be hours and hours and hours of videos of one incident after another look and and it's not all bad the, that Rittenhouse guy was essentially exonerated by the footage footage somebody else took and the police got their hands on it and that you know it basically showed the one guy was raising a pistol gonna fire at him 
and he fired in self-defense. It was game over then, as opposed to some guy just lying on the stand, which we all know uh, liberals don't tell the truth. I mean, liberals lie. That's part of being a liberal is they don't care about the truth. They care about the result they get. The end justifies the means. And, you know, they then they put all that Saul Alinsky crap on top of it. So, you know, don't think that because, you know, you're doing the right thing and everything is being correctly handled and you did exactly the right thing and everything else, um, unless, there's, unless there's some good video proof to back you up, the liberal will lie and it will, you know, definitely... Uh, do anything to put you behind bars and they'll perjure they'll do all that they do it all the time look at look at the lack of reality they have when they're making statements to the news media this is absolutely incredible that they say and do the things they do so understand that you're going to be filmed and uh, act accordingly you know act accordingly is the only thing I can really say okay we did our wild geese match what is a wild geese match uh the wild geese match was based on the 1978 movie uh essentially you know richard burton richard harris um roger moore hardy krueger you know it's this romping adventure in africa or they try to they try to rescue a an African president who's been imprisoned and everybody thinks is dead. They rescue him. They're going to try to return him to power. Uh, the people bankrolling it are a bunch of crooked businessmen back in Europe and, you know, on and on and on. It's 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 well worth watching. Um, it's a little preachy. Uh, as a matter of fact, in some cases, it's very preachy. But uh, other than that, though, it's it's a good movie to watch. If you, especially if you like Uzi's, FAL's, you know, DPM camouflage, red berets, jumping from airplanes, uh, running around Africa, you know, all that good stuff. So we did a match based on that. And, uh, you know, so there were a few lessons that came out of it that I'll pass along. First is rifles. Um, number one, when it comes to close range, I was surprised. I, I shot a, an FAL, and I was surprised how well I did because when I practiced for it, uh, our friend of the podcast and I were out shooting, and uh, I, I didn't really shoot it that well. But during the match, I shot it much better. So I was very, 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 very pleased with that. Uh, a good, it's a good rifle, and when you're using it on a man-sized target at combat ranges, very effective. You can you can honestly see why so many militaries opted for it and why people liked it. Very, very good rifle so uh other rifles that that were there the the best scores uh were actually fired by some intermediate cartridge rifles like ars and there was an aug out there at aug and a few other things uh a pt i think a ptr 91 there was one or two of those out there those were excellent 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 guns excellent rifles and uh, intermediate cartridges you know the recoil's lighter the gun itself is lighter all of that is very very good and so it was interesting uh, you very seldom see those two a full battle rifle cartridge stack up with an intermediate rifle cartridge 
and uh, what I can say is the battle rifle cartridges hold their own but the the rifle is heavier and the recoil is more so those things are all obvious but uh, it was a lot of fun to actually have them side by side I, I actually considered I, first of all I shot the guns I wanted to shoot and I actually considered um, I thought you know if I want to shoot my best score I'll probably an AR would be the best uh, a retro AR but I just wanted to shoot the uh, the FAL and it did not disappoint it did quite well I was very very happy with it I probably would have shot a better score with an M14 but or you know M14 clone M1A um, but you know I'm, I'm it was just it the FAL is such a pleasure to use the controls are in the right place really nice it's a really nice weapon so that was that was the thing I learned is kind of a, a kind of reaffirmed or or basically reestablished my um, liking of the FAL uh, I'll put it that way uh, pistols a lot of good pistols service pistols out there um, I had wanted to shoot a Browning high power but I could not find my box of extra magazines uh, so I wound up shooting a Beretta 92, and I'll talk about the Beretta 92 a little later on. That that is a really a fine a fine service automatic. What has always impressed me about the Beretta is how smooth it shoots. It's very very smooth. The recoil is very very smooth, and you get really good uh, uh, follow up shots. That's probably and nobody ever talks about it, but the Beretta is one of, when you're doing controlled pairs or even a double tap uh, the Beretta is an excellent pistol to be shooting for those because of the way it recoils and because of how smooth it is nobody ever really talks about that but but it is true and it's quite a good quite a good weapon really is uh, carbines uh, I shot it, it was a limited run done years ago but I shot a, a um, basically a semi-automatic version of an of an m3 grease gun uh, they're not very common uh, it was but it was a lot of fun to shoot and uh, you know at 40 yards uh, 45 ACP it, it did the job it, it absolutely shot what was a, a comparatively tight group quickly magazine changes no fuss uh, really good and, and basically every other carbine was the same way uh, the M1 carbine was a very good one. Uh, you can see why it was such a popular weapon. It really, it handles like a light carbine at close range. But, you know, the M1 carbine, unlike something like a grease gun or a Thompson or some other MP5 or something else, it will actually reach out to a couple hundred yards. I've seen them hit, you know, reasonably sized targets at 300 yards. Um is it a powerhouse no but but it really does do quite well it really is that bridge in between what we would call a pistol caliber carbine and a and a rifle it really does achieve that uh, so it's it was a very very good good thing one other thing that I used and I've talked about these before but you know I was always fascinated by the movies and how in a lot of movies you see the bad guys are always dressed in coveralls you know and it'd be whether it's an older the older James Bond movies or something else 
uh, somebody they're always dressed usually a dark coverall um, I think that's just a cheap costuming uh, trick that way you can always identify the bad guys uh, the costumes are cheap very inexpensive very identifiable you know so it's the other thing too is um, if all those guys are dressed the same you can use stock footage you know over and over because hey they're all they're always dressed in these you know dark coveralls I thought that you know I, it, and, and the coveralls that I've was used to in the military were either a a flight suit which is designed for flying and not designed for running around on the ground or they were like mechanics coveralls which were designed to cover you when you were doing a particularly you know filthy or grubby job you know uh, working on tracked vehicles or something which which can be you know lots of grease lots of dirt lots of mud and in order just to keep some of that off you they have the mechanics coveralls that you slip on over your uniform so th that was kind of my experience with them I did through Sarko buy a pair of grass pattern coveralls that were allegedly designed for combat use and and have now found their way into surplus channels um, it, was, it was actually a very good uniform to wear because it was actually a little bit cooler on the day than we had thought. If it had been really hot, I think um, I would have been in trouble because the inherent weakness of coveralls is they don't ventilate uh, because, you know, you have a big onesie and they don't they don't ventilate. The, the good part about coveralls is uh, you just have one thing to deal with. And, I mean, it's not like there's no belts, there's no all this other kind of stuff you just slip this thing on and you are ready to go put that on put your boots on and you're good uh, it had the pockets arranged like most of the combat uniforms do nowadays and uh, you know you had plenty of pockets for this that and the other thing uh, I was since I was kind of unfamiliar with the pocket layout I, I kept losing things you know I kept I put it in a pocket then you know had to search several pockets to find it again so that was about the only uh, drawback i had with it but other than that i was very pleased and it was made out of a very rugged material that looks like it would it would stand up but it's nothing you would use if you were going to the field for a week you just wouldn't use it i mean you might use it for like mission specific like a raid or or you know some sort of a short duration special operation type mission but you would never use it as a field uniform um, like you know in the Ukraine you would never use this that you're gonna wear this thing for the next two weeks in the Ukraine you just wouldn't do it so uh, that was my experience combat coveralls you know finally got to use a military quality coverall that uh, was designed for that use and it worked out quite well it actually worked out quite well um, I do believe, though, that in places of intense heat, uh, you would you would definitely kind of be miserable. And of course, you know so that's when you can get rubbing and rashes and all kinds of bad bad things can happen to you um, in the heat. So I think that uh, you know it would be of fairly limited use, and it would be in use in more temperate kind of climes where. Uh, uh, you're not going to do that or you know kind of a fall maybe even winter you could you could uh they would probably be very good in winter and i think a lot of hunters use something like that at least kind of a bib uh then they wear a jacket over it or something 
but uh, the the one big drawback was it, it was going to be hot it was going to be kind of rubby and chafy if i wore it for a long time and it did not ventilate so combat coveralls uh a possibility but not the not the complete answer and that brings us to the next part of the podcast which is questions and answers and uh so i will get to those and we we got plenty of time and we have fortunately plenty of questions so the first question is are there any makers or designs of firearms you don't like you know what firearms do do you not like well i mean i I think there's a lot of ways to answer that i would say that one of the best ways to answer that is which ones do i think are in the mainstream i'm not talking about you know very inexpensive even high points i'll leave them out they're just you know that that's kind of the ridiculously low and low price stuff so it's it's kind of the mainstream stuff i would say that the one firearm that i i just dislike because of primarily the way it looks are that the henry centerfire lever actions to me they are ugly clunky gaudy um yeah they're chunky whatever you want to describe they're, they're terrible um i will caveat that by saying that the the copy of the 1860 henry that they make seems like a very nice gun and a very faithful copy so i'm good with that i'm down with it uh, their 22s seem to be fairly sleek and you know good because they're 22s but when you get into the centerfire realm they seem to have taken some elements of the marlin um design some elements of the winchester design and they're just now you know putting loading gates on them they've been shamed into that after all these years before it was kind of the tube loading where you had to remove the tube and then put it put the cartridges in kind of a cutout thing on the loading tube on the magazine the tubular magazine one by one and then you put this tube back in in the deal um you know that's not really an old west way that that was done um you know there's a lot of you know just a lot of weaknesses they and and somehow they got accepted as as a gun that could be used in cowboy action shooting otherwise known as cas um it doesn't look authentic to the old west and they use some sort of bronzy alloy for the receivers which just looks horrid um it's blingy it's just terrible and of course to add insult to injury they make their their uh, uh barrel bands are made out of the same kind of stuff and they're blingy and horrible looking um yeah i i don't like them i don't like them in the slightest i'd never buy them they are comparatively pricey um you know and if you want to see what i'm what i'm really talking about look up do a google image on henry big boy and then do a google image on winchester model 1886 and you'll see exactly what i'm looking at you'll see exactly what i'm talking about you know the fact of the matter is when we talk about lever action rifles in the united states unless it's a winchester and less commonly a marlin pattern rifle um, 
it, it just doesn't it just doesn't fly even beautiful rifles like the Winchester Model 88 the Browning lever action rifle the BLR um, you know in, in the Ruger has made uh, some lever actions you know kind of based on their their 44 Magnum autoloader they basically made a lever action version which had a lot of design similarities none of those catch on to catch on if you want to be a lever action in America you got to do what Rossi did which is you make a copy of the Winchester 92 or I think Mossberg now makes a copy of the Winchester 94 you know whatever you you have to copy the Winchester designs you could get away with some Marlin designs because they're very cool very neat guns also but what not nearly as common and not nearly in the the image of the Western as the uh, as the Winchester is so uh, you know when you deviate from that you make something that nobody <laughs> really wants or people like me don't appreciate so I'd have to say that would be the one that I don't really like and uh, if it went away tomorrow I would not uh, I would not be that upset I would just say well well you know bad idea to begin with ah uh, okay this one I was listening to another firearms podcast and I heard the host talking about how the Beretta M9 is crap um, he was training MPs and they all had broken guns do you want to comment on this well I don't care I don't know what experience other people have I can only explain my experience and I've talked about how good the Beretta M9 really is. Is it perfect? No. Um, the criticisms of the Beretta coming back from combat zones, and this is almost 20 years of combat in the global war on terror, was that it had two problems that people didn't like. Number one, they didn't like the 9mm caliber because obviously they're shooting full metal jacket ammunition the second problem was the grip is large and and it has a long reach to the trigger when it's in the double action mode all those don't really represent huge problems because nine millimeter full metal patch full metal jacket is you know the world standard for military sidearms it just is so you know you got that you you've got what everybody else has so there you are and in fact, the M17 is in the same caliber and shoots the same ammunition. So no no real change there. The largeness of the grip and all that is manageable. People who have average and even smallish hands can still fire the gun effectively. They can still fire it, um, but it's not as comfortable. Uh, so those are the biggest things. And of course, now we know that our our armed forces are getting more diverse with lots some smaller people and and a more difficult to shoot handgun is not really what we're looking for so um, you know the the M17 is probably an improvement in that particular area because you don't have that very long double action pull where you have to reach forward for the trigger and and all the rest of it so those were my two my two things with the M9 I found the M9 to be outstandingly accurate, outstandingly reliable, 
and very durable. It was reliable and durable. I will say that, you know, and I, I heard the same podcast. So what I will say is, whatever somebody else's experience is, it is. But when that person has not been in the service, uh, I tend to I tend to wonder about do they know what they're talking about when they pronounce something is trash in the service and as it turns out I did a little research this guy was I think they were training National Guard MPs he was actually a medical trainer he wasn't a firearms trainer is what I've what I've discovered and I believe that to be true um, if, if you're that you're just an observer you're not a trainer you're just kind of an observer when it comes to the weapons firing the other thing I will say is that all military equipment, and I can talk about, and I'm sure other armies work the same way, other militaries work the same way, but in the U.S. military, okay, if, you, if you've if you got a bunch of broken anything in your, in your unit, um, that is a sign that you are not performing the maintenance and inspections you should be performing. And it's very simple. The maintenance that you should perform, and we'll just take the M9 pistol. If I'm an operator, I draw my M9 pistol, and I'm supposed to do an inspection. Just look it over, make sure everything's all all good to go, and it always passes that. You know, they always pass that. You do a function check to make sure that it, it functions, that the safety and uh, functions properly and all that. The bolt hold, or the uh, slide hold open works, all that stuff. You do a function check. Then you take it out and fire it. Now, when you're firing it, if you have a problem, failure to feed, failure to eject, or whatever the problem is, uh, you need to take that weapon to the unit armorer, and you actually fill out, you can actually fill out a piece of paper, an inspection form on it, and list what the, the problems are. The armorer should look at it and determine whether it's something that they can fix and they have manuals that guide them as to what they can fix what parts they can replace and if they can get it working again they will they they, if they have to replace a part they will and and then they're supposed to in, inspect it and make sure that it all works before you get it back should that fail should it be a problem that they cannot correct and that's called organizational maintenance then it goes to direct support maintenance and that can be an ordinance company or that could be a depot there's hierarchies and then they can what they will normally do is when you give them turn in a pistol to them they will normally give you another one in return which is known as a float which means that the old pistol is no longer your unit's property then the new pistol becomes your unit's property and they adjust the uh, property books, the hand receipts to reflect that change of serial numbers. So you still have the same number of pistols, but now you've changed the serial number. The best way to put this into civilian context is imagine you're the operator and you know you do the inspection and you have a pistol and it's say it's five years old. So it's no longer covered by factory warranty. You have a problem with it. Um, you can't figure it out yourself. So you take it to a gunsmith you inform them what the problems that you're seeing are they inspect the gun and if they can fix it by replacing a part or doing something else they do that and if they can't fix it then you have to return it to the factory and they can fix it 
Uh, so the factory becomes your direct support maintenance, your gunsmith is your organizational maintenance, and you are the operator. And that's how the, the military system works. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about pistols, rifles, radios, or anything else, even vehicles, parts of, from vehicles, you know, your, your, um, your trucks or your tanks or something else are not going to be sitting there idle because you turned in a, an alternator or a generator and you know you're waiting for someone else to fix it they will normally float you one direct exchange it's called so i turn in a bad alternator and i get a good one in return and you know we're, we're even steven okay we got the turn in document we got the issue document it's even steven then i go back and put that on my vehicle my ailing vehicle and voila it runs with weapons, it's a little different, uh, and they will and they will occasionally bring uh, weapons in. They have gauges and all kinds of things where they can gauge how much wear they have, and at a certain point, they will turn it in for rebuild. That's why a lot of the 1911s that the CMP is selling have been to rebuild sometimes two and three times, and they've had slides replaced and other parts replaced and 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 everything else. And if the frames were cracked or worn to the point where they can't put a replacement part on it then they will just you know they'll trash the the pistol so that's basically how it works so that's the the comments that were made in that podcast that you know berettas are trash and i've seen units with with a bunch of broke pistols what i'll tell you is that that unit is not doing its inspections and it's not doing its maintenance and it's not following its turn-in procedures and I can believe that possibly if it's a National Guard company, maybe they don't have the requisite expertise at the organizational maintenance, i.e. the armorer level, to, um, to do some of this. So that's a, that's a problem that the uh, unit commander will have to face. Now, let's just say that there's a bad piece of equipment gets into the system. And a bad piece of equipment could be like the first M17s that were issued to the 101st Airborne, which weren't cutting it. The reasons I don't really know, but I do know that they turned them, they turned them all back in. And there are readiness reports that the that the unit commander certifies that um, you know he can say, "Look, I just got a whole batch of these brand new M17 pistols or whatever widget you want," and they're not working out and here are the problems with it those are very important reports and they will gather those and they will look at them and say everybody's having this same problem therefore we must have an equipment problem that cannot be fixed by our normal maintenance inspection and correction routine so there you go the M9 is not crap. The M9 is good. I've never seen a broken M9. I've seen well-worn ones, and I've seen some that have been through rebuild, but they, they were still shooting. But um, I don't think that the aluminum frames would last as long as a steel frame, but that's just me. But uh, no, I've never seen one, and I've never seen a unit have a whole bunch of broken ones. And I've seen, I used to inspect units for a living. So I, if, if that were happening, I would know. So what that guy said on the podcast is not true, and it's... Uh, you know, more a, a guy who's on a periphery sees something that's an anomaly and thinks it's 
widespread across the whole forest, and that's not true. Next questions: Are Bomar-style rear sights suitable on a duty gun? The Bomar style is, a, is an adjustable rear sight, and it's kind of a, it's got a big, the rear sight itself is kind of large, the ears are slightly rounded, it's, uh, it's flat, uh, it's got a big screw to adjust elevation and a smaller screw on the side to adjust windage. Um, Larry Vickers just did a, a, I don't know if it was a Facebook post, I guess it was, saying, hey, they used those in Delta Force when he was in, and they, they worked very, very well. Um, my experience with them is that they work very, very well. I've, I've got a couple of them. Uh, I would not hesitate to use it on a duty gun. I mean, they're rock solid. And they're made by different manufacturers now. It's not just Bomar. It's, um, I have one made by Wichita, which was a company which was around years ago. Uh, and they produced high-quality stuff. Um, I've got one. Yeah, I've got a Bomar. Uh, you know, there. But there are other companies now that make them. Yes, they are excellent, especially on a 1911 style pistol. I've never really seen one on a Glock or a uh, some of the other pistols. But you know, theoretically, I guess they could be put on there. Uh, I would prefer it to an optical sight on a pistol. I just would. Uh, you know, we'll see. But uh, I think the Bomar sight was. It's, it was excellent, used for a lot of target work, and a lot of good guns have them. Um, but they're not optical, so I don't think they're going to be, you know, the uh, the new hotness or anything. But they they are excellent. So yes, I would use it on a duty gun without reservation. Uh, I saw a picture of the FNPS 2000 in the Ukraine. Is this widespread? Uh, I don't know how widespread it is. Uh, I don't know that even the when we see pictures that are purportedly from the Ukraine, understand that especially with photographic technology now, anything can be altered to look like anything. Uh, when you see a picture of a guy just kind of you know taking cover on the ground and he's got one of these things and he's in a Ukrainian uniform, you have no idea if he's in the Ukraine or if he's in the woods in Belgium or the woods in West Virginia. Yeah, you have no idea. Uh, there's no context. There's nothing else in the photograph that provides context, like he's, you know, next to a knocked out T90 tank, or, or you know, he's in the middle of the <laughs> the capital in <coughs> Kiev, and and you can see everything. So there's no there's no real uh, uh, context. So I can assume that probably these things are finding their way there, um, but again. There's no rock-solid proof, and there's no uh, uh, collaboration that, that cooperation, I should say, that they're actually there. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like seeing pictures of UFOs or, or Sasquatch. You, you don't, know, don't know quite what you're looking at. Uh, is there a way to make factory ammo cheaper and more affordable? Well, I don't know that they want to. I would say that the if I if, if I were king and they said here's your project make factory ammo cheaper and more affordable I think I would and again I'm not a huge thinker or an engineer or anything um, the first step I would take would be saying I'm gonna make every pistol round I can with an aluminum casing 
and I would use a standard size primer like a small pistol magnum primer that's what I would use and I would just buy those and buy them in bulk and use them because I know I could ignite basically anything with a small pistol magnum primer so everything up to about 45 cold I think you could get away with that because they all operate low pressure enough 10 millimeter might be a challenge uh, 357 sig might be a challenge but we know they, they've made nine millimeter blazer for years they made nine millimeter or a different uh, calibers in blazer for years so it's just a question of can I get aluminum cheap enough and would that save me over a brass cartridge case um, my instinct tells me it should and that that would be a great way to go uh, other things you can do is rather than using a full metal jacket bullet uh, especially in a lot of lower velocity calibers you can just go back to lead bullets I mean 38 special lead bullet you know hey it doesn't get any cheaper than that and even for nine millimeter you could use a lead bullet that's got some kind of coating to it uh, Missouri bullets with their high-tech coating I've used I've used a bunch of those and I, I tell you I can't tell it from jacketed I mean I just can't do it so I would use that in a heartbeat as a substitute and you can drive it at reasonable velocities and and uh, everything is uh, good to go so a lot of the ammo we have now so that would probably make them a lot cheaper uh, that's that's the first thing I would go uh, with rifle ammunition it's gonna be a lot harder um, I think there's a future in steel cases um, and, and again we're not taking hand loading into account you'd still have to have brass and all these other things for you really can't unless they can do a breakthrough technology and, and make an aluminum uh, alloy that you could actually you know hand load resize and hand load um, this this is just kind of the replaces that Warsaw packed style ammo that we've all been used to that we're not going to be getting anymore so um, you know that's what it that's what it is I would go with aluminum I would go with simpler bullets where I could and I would uh, go with coatings on lead bullets for for some of the other calibers I mean there's no reason that a high-tech coated 32 ACP lead bullet would not work as well as a jacketed bullet and, and it my instinct is it has to be cheaper that an aluminum case and a lead and a coated lead bullet in 32 ACP would have to be cheaper 380 ACP would have to be cheaper and this would not be you know obviously top-end defense ammo but it would be stuff that will function in your gun that you can shoot and practice with and enjoy so that's if I were king that's where I would be uh, that's where I would be looking to go but I don't know that they even have the uh, the instinct or the uh, impetus to even do that so that's what I'd say about that uh, all right given that most states have the castle doctrine what do you think are the best defense weapons for people who are not routine or hobby shooters uh, if you're talking about a weapon that's really not going to be taken out of the home I would resist the urge to get a high point uh, I would get a pump shotgun or a Ruger 1022 rifle that's what I would get um, you can get 
those are the low cost options. You could get the uh, Ruger PC9. That would be a good carbine to get. Um, but essentially, even a used pump shotgun, which is not going to cost very much, would be a good a good thing to use. Um, I do like a pistol as a defense weapon, just simply because it's something that I can kind of stick in a pocket. I told you my story about you know a guy beating on my door. At, 5:30 in the morning and I go down with a pistol and I look fortunately I did a quick look and it was a police officer now if I'd had a carbine or something um, that might have might have created a problem but basically I was surreptitious enough with the pistol to uh, put it behind my back and actually stash it and uh, you know it never came up that I was armed so but for most people I think a 1022 with uh, high velocity ammunition and I would get an extended magazine. Even Ruger makes them now. Good quality ones. Not the shitty Butler Creek ones that we used to use in the old days. But uh, I think they call them BX or something. The BX magazines. Whatever. Uh, you know, you get one of those and, and you know, there, there you go. There's your low cost, reasonable um, gun. Uh, and, and at a certain point, you know, the 1022 is, is uh, something that you can... Um, put a rail on the top of the receiver and then attach even an inexpensive uh, dot site if you want to you know it's it's kind of it's kind of modular enough that you can accessorize it is it as good as a center fire well probably not but for people who don't shoot I mean it's as good as anything else a pump shotgun is the same uh, you know very reliable intuitive to use um, and you know, the only thing you got to worry about is short stroking it, but if you practice at least a little bit with it, you won't have that problem. Other than that, a, a good revolver is not a bad, not a bad option. Um, you know, again, I hate, to, <clears throat> I hate to steer people towards 22, but you know, there are some low price 22 revolvers you can get out there, and there actually are some low price centerfire revolvers, lower priced. But I'm, I'm a little leery of them, so I would be, uh, for a person like me as a gun person, yeah, hey, I can buy one and figure it out. And if it's not performing right, I can, I can figure out how to correct it. For somebody who's not a hobby shooter and just wants to kind of buy a gun, maybe familiarize with it a little bit and have it, that's not a good choice. The 1022 or the shotgun are the best choice. Okay, here's our last question. And that is, is the Walther P38 slash P1 still a good defensive pistol? Well, the answer is it'll still do everything it would do when it was introduced in 1938. So it's, it's, it's fine. It is an obsolete design for two reasons. Number one, the double action, single action, which it actually pioneered, um, is is out of fashion now so that's that's makes it somewhat obsolete and the the next thing is it is a single stack nine millimeter which means it has comparatively limited capacity in some states it's all you're going to be able to get so it doesn't matter that way um, i think though the biggest limitating factor limiting factor not limitating limiting factor 
is that most of them are even the post-war surplus ones are now semi-collector's items and certainly the wartime guns are so it, it you know it isn't it isn't 1990 anymore when these things were you know still reasonably priced um you know there are probably other alternatives that you can get which would be less expensive or the same cost that might give you some more features and really you could take a whole podcast to go through available nine millimeter guns but um, i would say that probably um, if you had one and you don't want to spend any more money and you're going to that's what you want to use i think you're you're fine but i would not go out and procure one of these specifically uh, to do that just wouldn't do it so that is my answer on that and this brings to a conclusion this episode of old school guns episode 140 you can always reach me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or leave a comment on podbean and we will get to it but until next time This is Old School Guns, out.